Now, good morning. Good to see uh, each one of you here. Tad nervous this morning because we have uh, we have one grandchild who often I don't know how often, but he draws pictures of who's ever preaching, and I've seen some of those pictures, and that's why I'm a, just a tad nervous this morning. <laughs> we join with me as we uh, as we uh, open this part of our time together this morning in prayer. Father, we uh, bow before you, uh, pray that you would, for the next uh, half hour or so, uh, speak to us through your word, uh, give us ears to hear, uh, open our hearts, convict where necessary, comfort where that's necessary as well. So we just commit this time to you, in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Bobby Watkins was eight years old when he uh, ran away from home. This is Montana, ranch country where my parents were raising a couple of hundred head of Hereford cattle and three young boys. I'm not sure which one was the greater challenge. This was a beautiful Saturday morning, big sky kind of a morning. But a phone call took priority over everything that morning, including the uh, usual Saturday morning pancakes. And back in that day, a phone call was a pretty important thing because we only had the uh, phones, a party line, our call was one long and two short. We'd only had that for a month or so, so a call was pretty important. Turns out that this phone call was made to all the ranchers in that area within about a 21 mile radius saying that Bobby Watkins had run away from home. He was a troubled child. Uh, his parents had divorced and now he found himself on a kind of a remote ranch where his newly acquired stepfather uh, didn't particularly like him and didn't uh, understand him. So Bobby chose this Saturday to run away from home. So all the adjacent ranchers were on the alert. Uh, they were out in their uh, pickups driving the county roads looking for the runaway. We were in our 1950-something Studebaker pickup out with everybody else looking for uh, Bobby Watkins. And all we saw all day long was other people in their pickups doing the same thing we were. Long towards the evening we went home, uh, had supper, after supper there was another phone call. They found Bobby Watkins, he was home safe and sound. Uh, it's what happened after that that is uh, particularly etched into my memory collection. Because Dad took us three boys out on the east side of the old homestead house where it was still shady. And he stood us all in a line, uh, sort of like we were in, uh, in the army. Uh, we were standing there at attention and, and Dad said this. Listen boys, they found Bobby. He's home, he's okay. There's something I want you to remember. Don't ever forget this. If you ever decide to or want to run away from home, remember this. We're not going to call the neighbors. Nobody's going to be driving around looking for you. No neighbor will be looking for you. And neither will we. Silence is what Dad got, and silence is what he was after. We knew exactly what he meant. And none of us boys ever run away from home. Because we knew that there were certain and significant consequences to running away from home. Will you please stand with me? We're going to read today's scripture. Please stand as we read from Deuteronomy 
chapter 5. We're going to read verses 1 to 6, and then we're going to read verse 16. So breaking up just a little bit. And Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statute and rules that I speak in your hearing today, and you shall learn them and be careful to do them. The Lord our God made a covenant with us in Horeb. Not with our fathers did the Lord make this covenant, but with us who are alive here today. The Lord spoke with you face to face at that mountain out of the midst of the fire while I stood between the Lord and you at that time to declare to you the word of the Lord for you were afraid because of the fire and you did not go up into the mountain. He said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Verse 16, honor your father and your mother as the Lord your God commanded you, that your days may be long and that it may go well with you in the land that the Lord your God has given you. You may be seated. The title, as you see in the bulletin of this message, is What Happens When You Run Away From Home? Main text, Deuteronomy chapter 5, honor your father and mother. The main idea is this, there are consequences to a nation that chooses to obey this commandment. And there are consequences to a nation that chooses to not obey this commandment. And by the way, I'm using the term run away from home as a metaphor. It's a figure of speech. It's the idea that uh, you're not obeying this particular commandment. So that's, it's, a, it's a metaphor, run away from home in this uh, uh, talk. It's disobeying the fifth commandment. If a nation succumbs to systemically Failing to honor their parents, there are certain and significant consequences. So the outline for this message is pretty simple. First, we're going to look at the meaning of this message for the Hebrew nation. Then we're going to look at the meaning of this message for any nation on planet Earth at any time. And then we're going to look at the meaning of this message for our nation, the United States of America. Three points. Uh, we're going to look at the meaning for the Hebrew nation, for any nation, and then our nation. The last part will probably be mostly application, just a heads up on that. So before we uh, jump into that, just a bit of a backstory. Because our text this morning was uh, not delivered uh, to those Israelites devoid of some story, of some backstory. Rather, it came to them on the heels of what I believe must have been one of the most powerful, maybe terrifying, uh, events and stories of the entire Old Testament. So it's, it's hard to imagine maybe approximately 6 million people traipsing around the Sinai Peninsula 4,000 years ago. That's long before sunscreen and water bottles. So there they are, 6 million people in the, in the desert. That's a lot of people who only 500 years before that were only a single family. There was only though Abraham and his lot. That's a play on words, by the way. Abraham and his lots. The family expanded uh, and uh, ended up in Egypt, where they grew greatly in number and spent four centuries as slaves. Now here in Deuteronomy, as they get ready to go into the Promised Land, Moses takes them back to Mount Sinai 40 years earlier. They had grown into a nation. They were camped at the foot of Mount Sinai. And in the book of Exodus, chapters 19 and 20, we won't go there, but there we're privy to what must have been one of the most spectacular visual and audio events uh, ever witnessed by human beings. God told Moses to gather all the people, all the dads, all the moms, all the teenagers, 
all the little toddlers together at the foot of this mountain. But before they gather, Moses, at God's command, tells the people this. Something special is going to happen. So get ready for this event. Everybody wash your clothes. You've got three days. That's a lot of people washing a lot of clothes in the desert where there's not much water. And this is before Maytag and Tide, so that I'm not sure how they accomplished all of that. But they had washing day. After that, then Moses consecrate the people and they meet at the foot of the mountain. And then it happened. Uh, all heaven broke loose. There was thunder, lightning, fire, smoke, earthquake, loud trumpet. I mean, it was one, a scary deal. In fact, uh, the Bible says that there was not, that no one was left who wasn't trembling. Everybody was trembling. It's not hard to believe. There wasn't a single person who was standing there, a head tall, uh, sort of proud, saying, this is nothing like the storms we had back in Kansas or Egypt, wherever it was. This was one holy and horrific display of God's majesty, of his holiness, of his power. And in that setting, God calls Moses up to the top of the mountain. And remember, by this time, Moses is 80-something. Uh, and he's told to go up the mountain. That puts him about the same age as Wayne here. And I, I assume that these two men probably are about the same shape. In the same shape. No Forest Service trail. Climb the mountain. By the way, uh, Mount Sinai is about 1,500 feet higher than uh, Black Mountain here. Is it Black Mountain? Yeah. Back there where you folks live. About 1,500 feet uh, higher than that. Moses climbs up there, stays for 40 days. Finally, he comes down. He's got in his arms the Ten Commandments. This is God's to-do list. Ten items that constituted God's short list of values, that is, oughtnesses. The way that God's people ought to live in relationship to Him and how they ought to live in relationship to other people. Today we're zeroing in on one of those commandments. Honor your father and your mother. This is Father's Day. But first, the meaning of this commandment for the Hebrew nation. So for starters, the Hebrews uh, that were standing there, they already had some understanding of what it meant to honor one's father and mother. This wasn't a total, this wasn't a surprise to them. This wasn't a shock to them. It might have been a surprise at how quickly it showed up in the Ten Commandments. But they knew what it was to honor mom and dad. They were not ignorant of the family concept. Those who heard this commandment at Mount Sinai first and now the second time, they didn't uh, you know, look at each other and sort of cock their heads and say, no, what does that all mean? No, they knew what it meant, basically. They all spoke Hebrew. They knew the meaning of the word honor in their language. They knew what kavod meant. They knew what it meant to honor, to obey, to respect, to dignify, to consider something important. And they also knew, because of the prevalent worldview in that uh, area and in that era, that in the ancient world, that the only institution for caring for family, for caring for adults, for caring for their parents, was the family. That's all there was. This was before uh, Social Security. This is before there were uh, homes to care for the elderly. This is before there was an extended care in the medical facilities. The only way the elderly were cared for was through the family. 
So these Hebrews would have understood that as well, that they were to care for uh, mom and dad uh, all the way to the end. That is to provide uh, at least uh, to see to that uh, mom and dad had food, water, love, shelter, uh, until they passed away from this earth. That's what it meant to honor father and mother in that day, in that era, in that culture. They knew that. Now, I'm supposed to be clear, I probably should add here that I don't believe this commandment is telling us in our culture, where we do have uh, places for elderly, that all Christians have to have mom and dad uh, in, their own, in their homes to care for them. If they can, that's wonderful. But there are other ways that moms and dads can be cared for. And it's, but I do believe it's up to us as Christians to see that our parents are cared for, whether it's in our home or whether it's in some other facility. So not only did the Hebrew people understand what it meant to honor their fathers and mothers, now as a result of the second part of this commandment, uh, they also uh, uh, understood that uh, there was some consequences to this. I'll read the verse again. Just to, I'll, I'll add some emphasis to it. Honor your father and your mother as the Lord your God commanded you, that your days may be long, and that it may go well with you in the land your God is giving you. Those that's are pretty significant in this uh, commandment. Some versions have so that, uh, we could translate it in order that. Uh, this command was from a covenant keeping God to a covenant receiving nation. The agreement, a, a included assurance of national longevity and prosperity in the land that God was giving them. His promise of long days and it go well with you were conditional upon this nation being a father and mother honoring nation. Implicit in this command also is the opposite or the negative. If they chose not to be a God honoring nation, uh, or I, if they chose not to be a father and mother honoring nation, that is, if they chose to run away from home, if they chose to systemically not honor the family institution, they would suffer the consequences. So how did they do? If we review the Israelite history, obviously we're not going to take time to do all of that uh, this morning, but I do want to look at one place where they chose to not obey this uh, over a fairly significant course of time and what, uh, what God did there in uh, Ezekiel chapter 22, verse 7. Again, you don't need to uh, turn there. I'll just read the, the verse. Ezekiel 22, verse 7. First part says, Father and mother are treated with contempt in you. Ezekiel is talking about Jerusalem. In you is the city of Jerusalem. And in the book of Ezekiel, as you may remember, God, had, God took uh, nations to task, he took Tyre to task, he took Egypt to task, and now he's taking the city of Jerusalem to task, telling them that God's judgment was coming. And when it came, well, as it says in uh, the book of Ezekiel, about 77 times, then they would know that he was the Lord. Now in this verse, Israel lowers the boom on Jerusalem, his, his city. He tells the folks of that city that he's had enough, He's up to here, and he's about to judge them. And what is it that brings this judgment on? One of the first things out of the chute, 22 verse 7 says this, 
Fathers and mother were being treated with contempt. They were not honoring their fathers and mothers. And for that reason, and some others that are listed there, but the first one is the father, the father and the mother, the judgment would come, and then they would know that he was the Lord. This commandment to the original audience was a command to be a father and mother honoring nation. If they chose to obey this commandment, there would be blessing. If they chose to not obey this commandment, that is, run away from home, there would be judgment. Second, the meaning of this commandment for any nation. To understand what this meant for any nation, let's get a basic idea of God's perspective of family. Just very, very basic here. The very first social institutions, as you remember, God put in place on planet Earth was the family. He wastes no time, God never wastes time, in establishing this fundamental and foundational institution. In fact, the marriage aspect of this doesn't even wait till chapter 2 of Genesis. In chapter 1, Verse 27, we read this. So God created human beings in his own image, in the image of God he created them. Male and female he created them. There is very little that's vague about that statement. There's no wiggle room. Two genders, one family. That was the societal foundation of all that was to follow. Kids followed, clans followed, tribes followed, Nations followed, and all that followed was and is formed on the building blocks of family. That's the nuclear family. A dad, masculine, a mom, feminine, and the children of that dad and mom. And what is it that makes this family unit so incredibly important? Important to God and important to any nation. The answer to that's not uh, not difficult because it's within this institution, this fundamental building block, that lives are brought into this world, and that lives are shaped for this world. It's within the family that language, customs, traditions, values, songs, proverbs, stories, oughtnesses, and basic assumptions about all of life and reality are passed on from one generation to the next generation. It's within this family context that little ones first encounter authority. God ordained this setting for that purpose. They learn how to respond to authority, or not. And they generally take that initial learning and leaning and transpose it on how they respond to all authorities outside the family. To the police, to the referee, to the teacher, to the judge, to the general, and to the leadership of any local assembly, including uh, the flower club or the local church. The family is the kiln. It's the anvil. It's the incubator for human life. As families go, so goes the nation. Proverbs 8, uh, 1, verses 8 and 9. My children... Listen to your father when he corrects you. Don't neglect your mother's instruction. What you learn from them will crown you with grace. If families turn sour, the nation soon stinks. It's another proverb that was just made up this past week. The point we're making is this, is that this family thing is universal. It's the way God created and intended for all nations. So here's the bottom line principle 
when it comes to what is the meaning of this for any nation. The principle is this. Any nation that chooses to be a father and mother honoring nation will reap God's common benefits for doing so. Likewise, any nation that chooses to not be a father and mother honoring nation will reap God's judgment. This is in keeping with what the theologians call common grace. Common grace is different from saving grace. Common grace is a term used to describe the goodness of God to all mankind. It restrains sin, at least to some degree, as well as the effects of sin on a nation or society. It's this common grace that keeps any group of people from descending to the very bottom of the pit. It keeps the fullness of our fallen nature having absolute and full free reign. Fortunately for us, fallen nature is not sovereign. God is sovereign. And he grants common grace in this fallen world. If he did not, the world would look like the most heinous, X-rated, abhorrent, repugnant science fiction movie you could imagine or has ever been produced. All people should fall on their knees and thank God for common grace. Although few do. There's no lack of evidence regarding this principle. It's obvious with even a casual glance at world history that nations come and go. Some go as a result of outside force being subdued or overrun by a stronger nation. The Babylon Empire takes over the Assyrian Empire. The Persian Empire takes over the Babylon Empire. The Greco-Roman Empire takes over the Persian Empire, and on and on it goes. But there are many nations that fall, not because of outside force, but because of what's happening within. The decay comes from within. They shrivel from the inside. And that shriveling often begins in the family, in the home. Ever read the rise and fall of the Roman Empire? It was the growing moldiness of the family institution that was one of the primary reasons that the Greco-Roman power crumbled. Yeah, one more. How about the nation of Russia? We lived in that country for six years. And at least where we lived, it uh, wasn't a pleasant, peaceful, serene, let's plant a cabbage in the dacha kind of a place. It was chock full of violence, drunkenness, and I, and I mean chock full of violence, drunkenness, wife beating, murders, and robberies. I remember one evening at a prayer meeting where Misha Trukchek and I were the sort of the church leaders there. There was ten other men in the meeting, and we prayed and had a devotional from Scripture. And Misha, who was sitting next to me, leans over and whispers in my ear, Mike, you know we're the only two here who haven't murdered somebody? Russia has long been chiseling away at the basic family unit. Lenin decided that in order to bring about what he called the new Soviet man, his target was the family, and primarily the, the husband, the father. He also tried to take, he took children out of the homes and for a while raised them in government-run communal homes, but that failed miserably, so they canceled that. He equated marriage with slavery, and this one, you, uh, at least living over there, you saw in uh, pictures on the walls, he intentionally blurred the lines between male and female by visual propaganda that had Soviet women look like men. Thick necks, broad shoulders, burly arms, picks and shovels in hand. 
All that was to blur the lines between the sexes. Russia may appear to be a strong nation, it's not. It is rotting from within. Summarizing this point, one of the main avenues of God's common grace comes via the family institution. Any nation that honors their parents, more often than not, will enjoy an aspect of God's common grace in a manner that makes life on earth safer and more peaceful. Any nation that chooses the opposite will reap the opposite. Falls in line with the principle of what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, where he said on that Sermon on the Mount, talking about his Father God, he says, He makes his Son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. God gives common grace as he sees fit, even to those who are unjust and wicked. Final point. The meaning of this commandment for our nation. What about us? And by us I mean the U.S., the U.S.A. Where do we stand? We certainly qualify as one of the any nations that we were talking about. God is sovereign over nations brought United States of America into existence. Second Chronicles chapter 20 verse 6 tells us, You, God, rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. How do we as a nation stack up when measured by our obedience to this, our uh, highlighted commandment, where we read, once again, honor your father and your mother as the Lord your God commanded you, that your days may be long, and that it may go well with you in the land that the Lord your God has given you. How are we doing with that? I think the answer comes if we look at our history, that is, our family history. Such a survey will give us a pretty good idea regarding the national trajectory regarding family. If we see a pattern, a definite pattern, a certain path, we can make reasonable assumptions about where our nation is headed. These assumptions are not fallible, are not infallible, obviously, of course they aren't. We cannot see what God may choose to do. Nevertheless, we can make reasonable, intelligent, spirit-guided assumptions concerning the likely future of our nation. It's not unlike that group of men that we've talked about in our Sunday school class in 1 Chronicles chapter 12, verse 32, where it talks about the sons of Issachar, where it says they understood the times. In other words, they looked around, they knew God's word, and they came to assumptions about uh, what was happening and where they were in history. As a nation, we began well uh, in regards to the family. We began on a solid, traditional, Judeo-Christian foundation. Family was central. Virtually everyone knew what a family was. Virtually everyone knew what a man was. And I would guess that virtually everyone knew what a woman was. Even those who were not college trained in biology or sociology. Divorce was not the norm. Single families were not the norm. Teenage suicide was not the norm. Was everything perfect? Of course not. Of course it wasn't. There's no such thing as a pristine national geographic airbrushed planet or culture on planet Earth. But there was national stability built on family stability. But early in the last century, beginning of the 1900s, cracks began to form in our nation's foundational building blocks. An ideology from Europe made its way to America. It was a way of thinking that was overtly anti-family. The Enlightenment had produced a significant number of human-centered philosophers and writers in Europe at that time. 
Their take was that the family institution was oppressive and destructive as an institution. They despised the traditional concepts of marriage, family, and religion. They believed marriage and family were at the core evil. In fact, after Marx died, some of his followers in uh, Europe instituted ways to feminize the family with deviant fathers and mothers who would serve to weaken the structure of society. That ideology came across the Atlantic to America in the early 1900s. And by the way, it didn't sneak onto our shores like some rat that tiptoed onto a ship in France and then climbed off the boat once it landed in New York City. No. The ideology was invited to America by America's founding father of uh, education, John Dewey. And he brought that into the America's educational institution. From there, it snowballed. One of the men who came over from Europe at the invitation of John Dewey was a guy named Herbert Marcus. He was a leading figure in the 1960s in fueling the sexual revolution of the 1960s here in America. To that end, he and others deliberately targeted the American male. I submit to you that that target has not faded one bit. Here's an analogy. We're at a shooting range. Out on Highway 2. Down at the end of the range, there's a wooden frame holding up a huge, traditional, circular target. The wooden structure holding up the target symbolizes the family. It's part of the target. But the overall target is something else. It's masculinity. But the very center, the bullseye, is dad, is fathers. The father who's the masculine leader of the family. That's the target that they have. What in particular is being done to take fathers out, to take them down? Uh, we could go on for hours on that topic. And, uh, I'm just going to mention very briefly two fronts, very, very briefly. One front is Hollywood. One is hard-pressed uh, these days to find a sitcom where dad is not the buffoon. Over and over again, the husband or father figure is belittled, he's the clown, he's the dimwit. All I'm going to say about that one. Then there's this one. Pornography. This is perhaps the worst global epidemic the world has ever seen. I think it makes COVID-19 look like the sniffles. I'm not exaggerating. This is not hyperbole. Pornography on a global context is absolutely bizarre. I work with a fellow who ministered in Papua New Guinea for quite a number of years, back in the 80s. Uh, one, of his, uh, one of his co-workers had just gone back to Papua New Guinea to uh, uh, assist the church there. Number one problem in Papua New Guinea, this is out in the middle of nowhere in Papua New Guinea, where they now have cell phones. The number one problem in the church is pornography. Billions of dollars annually is the income. Billions. I read somewhere a, a year or so ago that it's more than McDonald's and Exxon combined. But mind you, 
the original purpose and still the underlying purpose is not money. Well, it is for those people who are making a lot of money. But behind that, well, if we go all the way behind that, Satan is not a capitalist. He's not out to make money. He's out to create havoc. He's out to get even. Even with God. And the target? The target of pornography primarily are the dads, the males. Get them deviant, and the family's on its way down. Pornography is proven to be a very effective tool worldwide, including in the church. Read the statistics. We won't get into them. The prognosis for the family in America uh, is not rosy. The trajectory is pretty obvious to even the casual, to even the casual researcher. If our nation continues down this road, the common grace we've been experiencing will diminish, if not disappear. We will be living in a very different world than our pilgrim fathers envisioned. So what do we do about this? Those sons of Issachar that we mentioned earlier did not just understand the times. That verse goes on to say that they understood the times and they knew what Israel should do about it. When it comes to the family institution here in America, I think it's clear what we as followers of Jesus Christ should do. We must enter the fight of this battle. We must do all that we can to support family, laws, books, films, activities, advertisements. We must not allow pornography to get within a country mile of our homes uh, or ourselves. We must be families that honor God at every level, in every institution, seven days a week. And to that end, at a most fundamental level, we must honor our fathers and mothers. Well, there's one elephant in the room. Let's see, we got started a little bit late, so to make up for that, I'm going to preach a little bit longer. No, that doesn't quite make sense, does it? There's an elephant in the room that we want to tackle. Uh, what about situations where, where there's been abuse? And I'm talking about uh, terrible abuse. Abuse done to children by their fathers and mothers. What do we tell those people who have suffered that kind of treatment at home, in the homes, by the very people who are supposed to be caring for them, protecting them, providing? What do we tell them? Uh, do we say this? Uh, honor your dad and your mom. God says so as a command, some suggestions, so get over it, just do it. Is that what we say? Well, I think not. I think there's only one, one path to help such people. Only one way. It's a narrow path. It's a very narrow one. They must hear the gospel message and they themselves must bow the knee to God, the one who created all things. They must bow the knee to Jesus Christ, the one who died on the cross. They must bow their knee to the Spirit who convicts people of sin and then comforts them in their salvation. Being born again, having a new nature, being forgiven, having a totally different look at all of life, that's the answer. That's the only answer for those people. There is no way on God's green earth that father abused children can truly honor their abusive dad apart from new life granted to them through the Lord Jesus Christ. It simply isn't going to happen. The commandment really is a schoolmaster to Christ. The commandment really does take us to Jesus. 
And by the way, this is not true just for those who are abused. This is true for all of us. None of us have kept this commandment completely. None of us can keep this commandment. It drives us to Christ. We need His forgiveness, His salvation, and then He grants the wherewithal for us to obey and to honor our parents. If you're running away from home today, that is, if you're living in disobedience to this commandment, if you're continuing to refuse to honor and respect your parents, then it's time for some very serious contemplation on your part. If one says out of the one side of the mouth that he honors God and wants to please Him, and yet says out of the other side of the mouth by actions or words that you do not honor your parents, then something is very, very wrong. That kind of dichotomy is not sustainable. Not from God's perspective. If you're a child of God and yet running away from home, then He will indeed come looking for you, unlike my earthly father. And I'm speaking metaphorically. God doesn't have to come looking for anybody. He happens to know where you are. And He will discipline you in order to conform you into what He desires. And I believe the discipline will likely be commensurate with the obstinance. And you will be glad that he found you. You will be glad that he disciplined you. You will be glad that he turned you around. And then you will know that he is the Lord. So in conclusion, like the Hebrew nation of old, we know what the word honor means. We have a pretty good idea of what that means. We do not need a great deal of exegesis on the word. We don't have to know what that word uh, is in Russian and what it means there. We don't have to know what that word is in Hebrew and what it means there. We know what the word honor means in our English language. This is Father's Day, a day that we set aside every year to honor the dads of the family institutions, those folks who have the bullseye on their back. So we need to do that. We need to honor. If your dad is alive, honor him. If your dad is not alive, honor him. Because honoring parents doesn't end when we put them in the grave. How we talk about them and how we refer to them after they're gone also speaks volumes to little ears that are listening. As well as big ears that are listening. And our obligation to honor parents doesn't, is not dependent on, on them being honorable. It's a command to honor our father and mother. A significant part of your future depends upon it. A significant part of the future of our nation depends on it. There are consequences to obeying or disobeying this commandment. There are consequences to running away from home. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace in drawing us to yourselves. Thank you for the fences that you put around us. Thank you for your concern uh, for each one of us individually. Thank you for uh, your concern for our nation. And we pray for your hand upon, uh, upon the leaders of our nation. We pray for us as individuals that we would be diligent in 
understanding what's going on and in knowing what we can do about it. Help us in this particular uh, arena of family that we would be diligent in building and helping to build strong families, uh, starting with our uh, local area. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.